This is an ABC podcast. Hi, I'm Tom Switzer and this is Between the Lines. Now coming up on the final edition in our summer series, Andrew Roberts on the tarnished reputation of Britain's most misunderstood monarch. Roberts explains why just about everything we know about the so-called Mad King, King George III, why it's wrong. Margaret Cameron Ash questions the widely assumed reason behind the establishment of a settlement in Botany Bay, and she recounts the gripping tale of how England beat France in the race to found Australia. But to begin, let's go back to the August of last year to my conversation with the new country Liberal Senator from the Northern Territory, Jacinta Nambajimba-Price, who explained why she opposes an Indigenous voice to Parliament. It would be far more dignifying if we were recognised and respected as individuals in our own right who are not simply defined by our racial heritage, but by the content of our character. It's time to stop feeding into a narrative that promotes racial divide, a narrative that claims to try to stamp out racism, but applies racism in doing so and encourages a racist overreaction. We spend days and weeks each year recognising Aboriginal Australia in many ways, in symbolic gestures that fail to push the needle one micromillimetre toward improving the lives of the most marginalised in any genuine way. Well, that's from the maiden address of Jacinta Nambajimba-Price, a Walpuri Celtic woman, and the new country Liberal Party senator from the Northern Territory. She recently delivered what the veteran columnist Greg Sheridan called, quote, a kind of Gettysburg address that should be read by all Australians. And with that, it's a great pleasure to welcome back to Between the Lines, Jacinta Nambajimba-Price. Hello, Senator. Hello, Tom. Thanks for having me back. Oh, it's our pleasure. Now, in your maiden address, you tell some heart-wrenching stories in remote communities that sadly fail to attract the kind of media attention that The Voice attracts. Tell us about some of those tragedies. Well, you know, just recently there was a murder-suicide of a young mother, 30-year-old mother, and her two-month-old baby. She left behind two other children in that incident, and it really didn't seem to attract much um, national media attention that um, her mother and a baby were effectively shot and then the perpetrator then turning the, the gun on himself. And there was, there was that tragedy, but there was also uh, an Aboriginal woman in Catherine had taken the life of another Aboriginal woman close to her as well in, in a violent brawl. Not so long after that, another Aboriginal man had taken the life of his own brother. His charge was reduced to manslaughter, but that was as a result of a a fight between the two of them. And this sort of stuff just, it goes on and on and on, um, you know, in in Central Australia, in the Northern Territory. And it's, it's really just, it's absolutely heartbreaking just how consistently these sorts of tragedies occur, and yet there's very little attention, there's very little concern, there seems, from certainly those who march the streets, you know, fighting on behalf of the rights of Indigenous Australians. And, and you know, it's something that I've been trying to bring to the attention of the wider Australian audience for a very long time. 
And this Indigenous on Indigenous violence, you say the locals have been desensitised to it and there's no question these disturbing stories, with rare exceptions, get little media interest. This is Janet Albrechtson, columnist at The Australian. I'll run this quote by you. Condemning a racist remark at a footy game attracts more attention than the tragic death of an Indigenous child by an Indigenous parent. Jacinta. Yeah, there's there's so much more focus on if if there appears to be a, a white Australian doing the wrong thing by an Indigenous Australian and in, in any way as much as little as you know making a remark that might hurt somebody's feelings, it seems to be far more concerning for the wider Australian audience and certainly the media than it is people being having their lives taken from them. Um, in terms of black-on-black violence, which is the number one reason why Indigenous Australians are incarcerated at such a high rate, which is because of acts of violence committed against those that, um, you know, that they're supposed to love and care for. And it, it goes to the argument around the fact that we're always hearing about such we're incarcerated at such high rates, but the the notion that that is pushed by those who um, are, are always talking about that and and the activist class is that because it's we've got a racist system, but that's not the case at all. If we stop the violence, we in fact uh, will reduce rates of incarceration. Yeah, well, this raises the question about exploring violence within Indigenous communities. I mean, it does raise challenging cultural questions. This is hardly a novel observation, but is a good example Aboriginal customary law. Yeah, look, absolutely. And um, what's really concerning is there has always been a push to recognise customary law. There's an element of the treaty negotiations going on in Victoria at the moment around the fact that it's going to be led by culture and law. And I don't know, I don't think the wider Australian public, I don't think those purporting to know what that uh, means actually is. So there, one, it, it leaves the opportunity for 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 opportunists to make things up. But it also, when it comes to customary law, particularly in the Northern Territory, customary law involves violent punishment for laws that are broken. And in some of those violent punishments involves also, if a woman breaks certain laws, they could be subject to rape, basically, as punishment. And, and, <sighs> and you know, this is well-documented stuff. You only have to look as far as the Ngara Book of Law, which is Yungu Law in the top end, uh, which suggests that, you know, women can be subject to prolonged rape pretty much. Um, the word rape's not used because there is no such word in many Aboriginal languages because it's seen as, um, you know, appropriate in circumstances to subject women to that sort of thing. Um, but also torture, you know, the word torture is used in describing some of the punishment that can be um, meted out. And we don't have these conversations. We're denied um, these sorts of conversations in the argument because we're supposed to, as Indigenous women, stand by our race for the betterment of our race as opposed to our own individual individual human rights uh, as women to live free of violence. Yeah, well, you've cited Australian Institute of Criminology statistics that show something like in between 20 and 25% of people killed by their current or former intimate partners, they're Indigenous. That's a strikingly high percentage, Jacinta. 
Yeah, it's it's very, very high. Um, but there seems to be this undertone in this country that it's okay for uh, you know, Indigenous women to suffer these sorts of rapes. Uh, you know, if, if it's if it's black on black violence, it's okay. But if if we were suffering at those rates at the hands of white perpetrators, there would be an absolute uproar about it. There'd be demands for, to uphold our human rights. There'd be marches in the street. Um, but there isn't that sort of thing because, again, it's um, it, it's it's like a, a desensitisation and acceptance of violence amongst um, Indigenous Australians, between Indigenous Australians. My guest is Jacinta Nambajimba-Price, the new Senator from the Northern Territory. Now, Jacinta, you come to Parliament as someone who has closely studied the plight of remote disadvantaged communities, both in your role as an Alice Springs Town Councillor, your work as Head of Indigenous Affairs at the Centre for Independent Studies, which I should acknowledge I have run for the past five years. And disclaimer, I hired you in 2018. (laughs) Um, Tell us about the kind of uh, policy prescriptions that you advocate to address these deep-seated problems in those remote communities. Well, I think to begin with, um, the way in which services are delivered and funding is distributed around the country is largely based on Indigenous population, number of Indigenous population. We've got right now in Australia, we've got an in, a, you know dramatic increase of those who are identifying um, in the census as Indigenous. Um, for example, in 2021, I think it was 92,300 Australians ticked the Indigenous box for the first time. So when that happens, it skews the way in which funding and services are delivered. And we have to start looking at how we look after marginalised Australians regardless of heritage. Just because Indigenous, you know, just because you're Indigenous or have Indigenous heritage does not automatically make you a marginalised Australian. And so I think our focus should be supporting those who are particularly marginalised. And, of course, through my paper, Worlds Apart, which I was published through the Centre for Independent Studies, it actually demonstrates that the most marginalised are those in remote communities, uh, people whose first language is not English, um, who have the least opportunity for completing education uh, than anyone else in this country, and they are, they are the most marginalised. So we should be focusing our efforts on ensuring that it is those people that we are supporting first and foremost and not just generalising uh, about funding and support for Indigenous Australians, for Aboriginal Australians in general. Um, and I think, you know, another big issue is the fact that our bureaucracies um, have a lot to answer for as well, have, have um, a lot to be held to account for in terms of um, failures uh, to to achieve some of the things that they're funded and, and you know supposed to do, but we don't we don't look at those sorts of things and and the proposal around the voice is suggesting we just apply um, create another bureaucracy and place it in our constitution. I think the first thing we have to do is deal with the bureaucracies that we we yeah. currently have to ensure what? that they're doing the right thing. What about the alcohol bans in the Northern Territory, which have been recently lifted? Yeah, that's another huge issue, especially for the Northern Territory. With the the ending of the um, the Stronger Futures legislation that was that was put in place um, to create those bans, it was 
It was always thought by the coalition that the territory government would simply roll that legislation over to become territory responsibility. And the Northern Territory government failed to do that. They failed to consult with the community. Uh, you know, there were many Aboriginal organisations that were deeply concerned about the effects of alcohol being available back out in communities and on town camps. And we're already seeing um, the effects of that. We're already seeing that um, you know, just the other day there was a 13-year-old um, that was sexually assaulted in shopping in Kmart in Alice Springs. Uh, we had a, a man who was completely naked jump on a driving taxi in the middle of the day and stomp its window. Uh, I've, I'm getting reports from foster parents who who have been out of the system who understand that they're the children they were caring for because territory families decided to put them back into their families are now being picked up um, by authorities because the parents are more interested in drinking alcohol than looking after their children and now these children are back into the system and being re-traumatised. There is a lot going on and as a result of the failures of certainly the, the Territory Government, to make sure that, that that legislation was maintained to protect vulnerable people. Okay, now you've been a strong supporter of the cashless debit card. Uh, Federal Labor just removed it. Now, the opponents say there's very little evidence to show it's helped efforts to reduce gambling, alcohol, drugs in remote communities, despite operating trials across the country for more than five years. And that was the recent conclusion of the Auditor General. So does that suggest that Labor has been right to remove the cashless debit card? Jacinta? Well, there there are certainly um, reports that also provide um, evidence that it has worked uh, in, in many communities. And there's also a large amount of anecdotal evidence where voices of, um, you know, these marginalised and vulnerable women uh, particularly uh, have have stated just how effective it has been for their lives. And, you know, I talk to people regularly on the ground about the cashless debit card. I know that there were a lot of very fearful women who didn't want it removed when they heard that Labor was proposing to remove it in the lead-up to the election. The one thing that I find really... I, I, I just I just think it's hypocritical of Labor is that they like to recognise Indigenous Australians and our culture but won't accept that there are elements of traditional culture that family members can demand access to people's money and they have to hand it over, they're obliged to hand it over and that this tool was a protective measure for those vulnerable individuals. So they, they won't recognise those aspects of culture um, that are contributing to you know, the hardships for a lot of Indigenous Australians. And that's that's what the card did. My guest is Jacinta Namajimba Price. She's the new country Liberal Party Senator from the Northern Territory. Jacinta, let's turn to The Voice. The 2017 Uluru Statement of the Heart calls for the creation of an Indigenous voice to Parliament. Now, the Prime Minister wants to hold a referendum this term on whether to enshrine the body in the Constitution. The Liberal Party leader, your boss, Peter Dutton. He's kept the door open to bipartisan support. The Indigenous spokesman, Julian Lisa, supports it, as does the last coalition minister, Ken White, who, like you, is also Aboriginal. You'll oppose it. Why? I oppose it because I haven't seen, um, all I've seen, all I've witnessed, I think all Australia has witnessed, is 
bureaucracy after bureaucracy of this kind of um, that is being proposed for the voice continue to fail and not actually provide a voice for those marginalised people that certainly I'm trying to allow to be heard uh, going forward. And I, I know that um, Peter Dutton as our leader is, is basically saying, look, just show us the detail. And that is mm. another area that I can see that Labor conti- is continuing to fail on is providing the detail of what this looks like, um, making a generalised statement about what the question will be, be that will be put to the Australian public and then saying that, you know, Parliament will determine what this means afterwards. It's very, very dangerous um, as far as I'm concerned. I don't like the idea of us Indigenous Australians being separated along the lines of race and the suggestion Mm. that we're forever going to need special measures and be marginalised, you know, within our constitution. We should be aiming to be equal as Australians and not have to require um, these measures forever. Fred Cheney, a former Aboriginal Affairs Minister in the Fraser government, he says, quote, Aboriginal people want to be consulted on things that affect Aboriginal people. Well, I think every Australian wants to be consulted on what, how, you know, everyday, how, how policies, how legislation affects them uh, in their lives. And, and I think, you know, half the problem is that particularly out in remote communities, like we've seen certainly with the cashless debit card, is that vulnerable people will appreciate a measure like that. Then over time, there will be those members of community who take a certain position on things and who will effectively bully others around them and silence them. Uh, And and we don't often get to hear those marginalised voices. And and given that there are many out there, there there have been many pushes and proposals and wants and asks um, and, and the Albanese government is suggesting that even if we do have a voice, we don't have to listen. Well, then I, I don't see the point of it. And I think it comes down to, it certainly comes down to how, one, bureaucracies can do things better that already exist uh, and how those consultations um, can be done better within those bureaucracies. I don't think we need another layer to have to go through when Indigenous Australians are already dealing with so much bureaucracy. Yeah, when you talk about bureaucracy, the promoters of The Voice say that these proposed constitutional amendments, they're fairly modest. It would just have an advisory role to governments. It wouldn't be a third chamber, as Malcolm Turnbull has called it, and it would not have veto powers, as Tony Abbott has warned. So if all that's true, Jacinta, that's hardly radical tinkering of the constitution, right? Well, there's no point, really. Might as well just legislate it. And if it fails, um, which you know we've seen over again, it has. Then we don't need it <laughs> in in the constitution. Why put it in the constitution? Once again, where it divides us along the lines of race and suggests we're always going to need those special measures. Well, I think that many prominent supporters of The Voice are actually worried that this could be, this referendum could be a replay of the 99 referendum over whether Australia should become a republic. You're probably too young to remember that, Jacinta, but I remember virtually all the media outlets, uh, especially Rupert Murdoch's papers, uh, I think the Brisbane's Career Mail might have been an exception, but they strongly supported the republic and, and mm. yet it lost convincingly. Mm. 
Yeah, it's it's and and that's I think our history in terms of referendum and 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 certainly when Labor has put up a, a referendum shows that Australians don't tend not to really want to make uh, changes to our constitution, and 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 rightly so I think you know they have to really be the right changes for Australians um, to get behind them, and I mean I have faith I think most Australians feel like. We've been living through a time uh, where, you know, our, Australia has been divided up into two sets of people, and that's oppressors and the oppressed. And I think many Australians are are, are probably very tired of of this particular divisive push that's gone on, and and want to see Australians want to be recognised as as one country, one one people, regardless of what our heritage is. And I think I think this particular push is actually going to, uh, yeah, I think Australians in general won't want to support something that divides us along the lines of race. Well, you've certainly spoken out uh, about a wide range of public policy issues affecting the Indigenous community and you've been very vocal on The Voice, but for your pains, and I'll conclude with this, you've been denounced in in very crude terms, uh, a coconut, for instance, brown on the outside, white on the inside, the left-wing Twitter mob, they love to hate you. Uh, how do you account for this? I mean, why do you attract such nasty abuse from some of your opponents? <laughs> yeah, um, I guess because they want to maintain the status quo. And, and and I guess when I talk about issues, it's it's probably hits a raw nerve because there's a lot of truth in what I have to say and it makes people uncomfortable. I'm not really – I've dealt with bullies all my life. When they start calling you names, I guess you know you've won. You must be doing something right, and that's how I view it. And for me personally, there are very vulnerable people that I'm trying to support, I'm trying to enable so that their voices might be heard, and as long as they exist, I will re- I will always speak out regardless of the name calling, um, which is you know brainless as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and I, I know that our country more than ever needs um, to be able to have clear, open, honest conversations, regardless of how they might make people feel uncomfortable. That's Jacinta Nambajimba-Price, the country Liberal Senator from the Northern Territory. I spoke to her in August of last year. Coming up, Margaret Cameron Ash rewrites the history of the founding of modern Australia. Why do you think the British established a colony in what became New South Wales in 1788? You see, most people, they just think it was a dumping ground for convicts, don't they? Here, for instance, is David Hill, author of 1788 and Convict Colony. Here he is on this program a few years ago. They were desperate to get rid of surplus convicts. There was a crime wave in the second half of the 1700s in, in England. Uh, the jails were overflowing, uh, the prison hulks were overflowing, and there was a big fear of disease spreading from uh, the jails and the hulks into the broader society. And uh, Botany Bay was chosen as a last resort, and a pretty poor last resort at that. 
they just wanted somewhere to dump the convicts away from England. That's the former ABC Managing Director David Hill on Between the Lines in 2019. However, my next guest, she challenges the conventional wisdom. In the early summer of 1786, she tells us, the British government did not even think about the Pacific Ocean. Instead, the Prime Minister at the time, William Pitt the Younger, this was under King George III, he was finalising a commercial treaty to end centuries of bankrupting wars with France. Yet things changed dramatically, and Pitt resolved to send an occupation force to Botany Bay immediately. Why? Why did Pitt suddenly change his mind? Margaret Cameron Ash is author of Beating France to Botany Bay, The Race to Found Australia. It's published by Quadrant Books. Her other books include Lying for the Admiralty, Captain Cook's Endeavour Voyage. It's published in 2018. Marty, as you're also known, welcome to ABC Radio. Thanks for the invitation, Tom. Now, let's start by placing this remarkable story in its proper context. So after Captain Cook's epic voyage in the 1760s and 1770s, the colonisation of Australia, that was recommended at two parliamentary inquiries, 1779 and 1785, but the effort failed. Why? Uh, yes, it was uh, Joseph Banks's suggestion both times, and it failed. And uh, there were two perennial reasons. One was cost, and the other was the veto of the East India Company. They had uh, exclusive trading rights right through the Indian and Pacific Oceans. Uh, Australia was right in the middle of that, and they didn't want any competition. Uh, the, the other reason for the first one, the Bunbury Inquiry, was that uh, the uh, commission itself went a bit tropo, went a bit radical. They decided to end transportation altogether and keep the convicts in uh, England by building penitentiaries uh, where they would uh, repent, uh, get used to hard labour and become useful citizens. So that legislation was passed and poor old Banks lost his cohort of occupiers for Australia. But Prime Minister Pitt, in the northern summer of 1786, he suddenly changed his mind and resolved to send Governor Arthur Phillip and a fleet of 11 ships on the race for what came to be known as Australia. Why the sudden change? Well, after seven months of complete silence about Botany Bay, they did, as you say, leap into action. And that was because of a bombshell that was thrown by the Americans, actually, in the form of a letter which said that the French, that is La Perouse, were sailing not just for the goodness of science, but to plant colonies in New Holland. And um, this such a prospect overrode any British worries about cost or about the EIC. As, as Geoffrey Blaney says in The Tyranny of Distance, it was simply vital that France should not be allowed to occupy such a strategic site. Okay, so the British intelligence alerted Pitt about the, 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 this vital piece of intelligence, this looming French expedition to the Pacific. We'll talk about the American role very soon, but as you say in your book, today we think of England and France obviously as close allies. You know, they're allies in both world wars, NATO allies. However, at the time, and we're talking about the 1780s here, Marty, England and France were fierce rivals. How did the French get a jump start in the race 
for a Pacific empire? Because they had the most gain, uh, having lost the most in the Seven Years' War, they'd, they'd lost uh, their uh, pretty well everything. Their North American empire in, in the form of Canada, uh, the West Indies, most of them, the East, uh, lost their influence in the East. And so they were going to get their own back by starting an, a new French empire in the Southern Hemisphere. The great man here was Louis Bougainville. He was a man of action. First, he went south and he uh, colonised the Falklands with Canadian French uh, refugees. And then he circumnavigated the globe, looking for anything he might pick up. And he did claim possession of uh, seven places across the Pacific. He would have claimed an eighth, namely Australia, but he was blocked by the Great Barrier Reef. And he said that he heard the voice of God and he backed out and went north around New Guinea. That was just uh, 18 months before Captain Cook was on that coast. Okay, so context here. This is obviously in the lead up to the French Revolution of 1789, this race for Botany Bay, what's the last great Anglo-French contest before that revolution. Now, La Perouse, he has two French figures. Uh, They sailed past Sydney Heads on January 23, 1788, but Arthur Philip and his first fleet, they still beat France to Botany Bay by just a few days. That's right. It's an extraordinary story. The the French should have won this part of the race too. When the French uh, in Paris realised that uh, this first fleet was going, the Minister of Marine put a letter together with new instructions for La Perouse, who'd been in the Pacific for 18 months by this stage, put it in an envelope, sent the envelope to Moscow. A courier took it across Siberia. He arrived in Kamchatka, burst through the ballroom doors and handed it to La Perouse. La Perouse tells the story of this. He's says it was much better uh, reading the letter than dancing with the locals. The letter told him that the English were going to Botany Bay and he must go there straight away. And he should have got there by Christmas. However, although he cancelled the rest of his agenda, he just couldn't bring himself to give up on some non-existent treasure islands which were on the map he had in front of him, which had been published by the British Admiralty. The Admiralty knew the islands weren't there. They'd been dismissed uh, a century before. But uh, by leaving them there, uh, it provided a red herring for anyone who came after Cook. Uh, And so he wasted uh, three or four weeks and um, uh, the French eventually sailed south and, as you say, got to see uh, the east coast at Broken Bay on the 23rd and turned south. Just say the French arrived here earlier, say in late December 1787 or early January 1788. How would things be different today? <laughs> They'd be very different, um, <laughs> I would think, because although we can argue that the British had 11 ships and the French had only two, uh, don't forget half the people on those ships uh, re- recalcitrant uh, convicts and also totally unarmed. And f- mm. from their perspective, the French ships were there as taxis to take them back to Europe. So I don't think Philip would have stood much chance. 
really. Wow. I, I'm... Very interesting. Is there a parallel here with the space race in the 1960s? Look, there is. Uh, before Kennedy uh, entered the White House, he thought uh, the space race was all a waste of money and he wasn't interested, uh, much the same as, as Pitt uh, was far more interested in his Anglo-French uh, commercial treaty uh, than what was going on in the Pacific. But when your rival takes off, when Yuri Gagarin took off and uh, circled the Earth, that was enough for the Americans. Even, even Kennedy thrust caution to the wind and said, we will be on the moon within a decade. And that's, that's exactly what happened with Pitt. Now, Marty... We mentioned earlier this bombshell that triggered the crisis cabinet meeting uh, in the summer of uh, 1786. Now, that brings us to the role the Americans play here. Now, clearly what distinguishes your story uh, from the conventional wisdom about this matter is the importance you attach to the Americans. Now, the US and France were allies during the US Revolutionary War against the British. So I, I suppose the first question here is, why were the Americans wary of French intentions in the Pacific? Well, the French-Franco-American uh, alliance that uh, Franklin had signed with the French was... Uh, Benjamin Franklin. Uh, yes, uh, was, was just uh, a, 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 arrange, a marriage of convenience uh, against a mutual enemy, namely Britain. That war was over. The, the, they were still good friends. They still wanted, for purposes of trade, they were very anxious. Uh, the Americans were very anxious that the French would trade with them. But that is not the same as territory. And the French uh, ambassador, Thomas Jefferson, uh, was the most expansionist of the founding fathers. He uh, would look out uh, from his uh, house in Monticello and look west and say to himself, one day, my son, all this will be yours. He had great plans of picking off any Mexi uh, Spanish um, uh, settlements over there, and he, he was going to uh, get them all in the end. And so he di certainly didn't want the fr French uh, doing anything on his Pacific coast. Because he was so worried about this, about what La Perouse was going to do, he uh, got his friend, uh, John Paul Jones, the Scottish-born American leader of the uh, American Navy, who happened to be in France at the same time and was going out on the coast over some other business. He wrote him a letter saying, go up to Brest, the port of Brest, where La Perouse was loading, and find out what's going on. In actual fact, Jones was a very good spy, and he, uh, a month after uh, Lafrouz had left, he sent back a letter which spelt out exactly what the two French ships were, were holding, were, uh, had in, in, on, in people and in machinery and so on. Uh, they had uh, a lot of farmers on board, agricultural in instruments, heaps and heaps of plants fit for the south of France, as what you always said in those days. It was a very particular and very well-drafted uh, letter, and I, I've put it in the book. The minute I saw that letter, I thought, this has to be the letter that launched the first fleet. My problem was that uh, how on earth this letter was uh, 5th of October 1785 and we're, tr we're talking 18th of August 1786. But my purveyor of this letter was another even more remarkable Frenchman and this was John Ledyard of Connecticut. 
who was a very quixotic and uh, extraordinary man who's had several... And he was a veteran of Captain Cook's final voyage, correct? Absolutely. He'd, he'd uh, when there was, he was still a colonist, uh, this before the, um, the separation, he sailed on the, uh, with the third voyage, which was looking for the Northwest Passage. And in so doing, they had stopped at Tasmania en route and they'd spent three or four days there. So he knew and wrote very well of what was then thought to be part of New Holland. Uh, it was still meant to be joined. And so when Jefferson got this letter from Jones, he called in his friend Ledyard and said, what's all this about? Ledyard was able to say to him, well, I can tell you that um, these colonies will be planted in New Holland because that is the place where they would thrive. The only alternative that Jones had suggested was Alaska. And he said, these citrus plants aren't going to thrive on the Alaskan coast. So they knew, the Americans knew that La Perouse was going to settle Australia. They didn't feel like telling the British, funnily enough, and so it could have just ended there. But then the Marquis of Buckingham, uh, William Pitt's first cousin, wanted an American to front his gun-running operation to Venezuela. This is all in the um, American uh, correspondence uh, archives. Mm. So the, the American role here is so important, but we very rarely hear about the role that Jefferson and, and the spies play in, in terms of the Western settlement of Australia. That's right. That's right. And, and it, well, it's, it's, well, I don't think it's ever been spoken of before. This, no. This letter has been known of, and whether it's because it uses the phrase New Holland instead of Australia mm. or what, I, it, it is extraordinary to me that it hasn't been taken up before. You mentioned La Perouse and these two French frigates. They just miss out on this beating the English by days. What happened then? They, they just departed from the continent, right? Well, they did. Um, they stayed there for six weeks, did a lot of surveying, went up as far as the suburb of Liverpool and all sorts of things. They all met each other. Uh, La Perouse was invited over for, for two days and he had a lovely time in um, Sydney Cove. They were very friendly. But then, yes, the French departed on the 10th of March and nobody ever saw them again. No, that's right. Their, their, boat, their, their boat just disappears. Do we have any idea where the French ended up? Somewhere in the Pacific, presumably. Well, about 40 years later, they were, there was wreckage found at Vanikoro, which is part of the Solomon Islands, uh, somewhere between uh, New Guinea and Fiji. That was historian and author Margaret Cameron Ash. Her book, Beating France and the Race to Found Australia is published by Quadrant Books. And I spoke to Margaret in April of last year. Up next, setting the record straight on Britain's most misunderstood monarch. Well, he was Britain's longest-serving king from 1760 to 1820 during a time of significant change and upheaval, the American War of Independence, the war against Napoleon, and then there was the changing role of parliaments and the monarchy. Tumultuous times. So who was King George III? What was he really like? Now, the musical Hamilton and films like The Madness of King George they portray him in a dim and unflattering light. 
But the distinguished historian Andrew Roberts says his sullied reputation is completely wrong. And in his new book, he makes a compelling case for rehabilitating and reappraising his life and legacy. Andrew Roberts, as I say, is one of Britain's most distinguished historians. He's a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institute and the King's College London. He's written and edited, get this, some 19 books. His most recent book is called The Last King of America, George III. It's the life and reign of Britain's most misunderstood monarch. And the last time we had Andrew on the program, he was talking about another famous Brit, Winston Churchill. Andrew, welcome back to the program. Thank you very much indeed. It's great to be back on. Now, you're right that there's a lot of things we get wrong about King George III. Let's start with his illness. What's the myth and what was the reality? The myth is that he had a disease called porphyria, um, which is a which is a, a horrible disease that does indeed send people mad. Um, but in fact, that comes about as a because of a series of misdiagnoses back in the 1960s, where a um, a mother and son medical team basically gave the wrong symptoms to uh, doctors, and uh, created this uh, this. Um, diagnosis of porphyria. He didn't have porphyria. He had bipolar disorder effective type 1. It's a form of manic depression. So that is one of a a, a series of myths about uh, George III that I was able to uh, uh, dispel in my book. Yes, the stigma of mental illness coloured his reputation until now. Now, his mental illness, that's thought to have played a part in the loss of the American colonies. But my sense is from reading your book is his illness didn't manifest until 1788, so a few years after the event, right? That's absolutely right, yes. A lot of Americans are under the impression that it was partly yeah. because he was mad um, that he um, lost the American colonies. But as you say, um, the colonies were lost by 1783, five years before the first mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. outbreak. So in fact, uh, it had nothing to do with the, with the loss of America at all. King George, I mean, he's he's also portrayed as something of a barbarian, a brute, a buffoon, and a tyrant. And but you argue Renaissance man. That's a, that's actually a more powerful, more accurate description. And you say he's one of the most cultured of British kings. Tell us about his intellectual interests and cultural pursuits. Yes, it's a completely um, appalling myth. Poor um, George III had been made out to be all these things that you mentioned. Whereas, in fact, um, he was uh, probably one of our most cultured monarchs. He he set up the Royal Academy, for example, which uh, was intended to, and still does, in fact, increase the social status of uh, of artists. He um, created a library of some 80,000 books, which forms the centre of the British Library today. He was um, instrumental in helping to buy the telescope through which Herschel discovered Uranus, the planet which originally was named after George III. And then they went, uh, he he was a uh, very interested, of course, in Georgian architecture, a promoter of uh, some of the great architects of the day. He, in music, brought Handel, Mozart. Uh, Handel said of him that while this boy lives, my my, uh, music needs no other champion. Haydn, he tried to keep in the country. You know, it's a fantasy. Wow. He, he could play three instruments and so on. You know, the, the idea that this man was a brute is completely uh, absurd. His scientific instrument yeah. collection, it was the largest one in the world at the time. Yeah, clearly sophisticated. He had enlightened beliefs, but he, he famously never travelled, right? So he never really went anywhere. Why was that? 
um, he felt that he uh, could sort of understand the world from the vast collection of topographical maps that he had, some 40,000 maps, which are presently in the British uh, Museum. He is a, uh, it's a very sort of strange thing that he, although he was king of uh, Scotland and Ireland, he never went to either of them. He was elector of Hanover, never went there, uh, obviously never went to America, and spent most of his life really in the in the home counties of England, never terribly far away from, from London. He never went um, north of, of uh, Worcester, for example, or west of Plymouth. What about King George's views on slavery? Well, these are very, very interesting, especially as you can imagine, because uh, that is such a hot topic historically at the moment. Um, when he was Prince of Wales, he actually denounced slavery in a essay that he was writing that he wrote uh, sometime in the 1750s. We don't know exactly when. And uh, and he was, uh, I quoted obviously in the book, um, tremendously opposed to slavery. He never bought or sold a slave in his life. He never invested in any of the companies that did that kind of thing. Um, and, of course, he signed into legislation the abolition of the slave trade. Sorry for my ignorance. Is this the work of uh, Wilberforce? That's right. Yes, exactly. And he yeah. and he talked to Wilber to Wilberforce uh, in the uh, in audiences. You know, he, he he knew Wilberforce and discussed um, things with Wilberforce, including slavery. But he uh, didn't put any of his political power behind the uh, the abolition movement despite knowing it to be wrong so there is a there's a quite a serious sort of moral blot on his escutcheon for that tell us more about king george the third and how he understands the concepts like divine rule and constitutional monarchy and how did he engage with the politics of the day because this was a transformational period for the monarchy wasn't it Yes, it was. Um, not least, of course, because he did go mad on several occasions, and therefore we had a regency, um, and that you know that of course wound up um, give, giving essentially giving more powers to. Um, the uh, politicians. But there's a huge difference, of course, between the de facto powers, the actual powers that uh, the king exercises, and the de jure, de jure rights and privileges and prerogatives that he has in theory. I mean, in theory, George III could have vetoed a parliamentary bill passed by the Commons and Lords, but um, that hadn't happened since Queen Anne in 1709 and certainly didn't happen under him. He did appoint and dismiss prime ministers. Uh, he had uh, 15 of them in his, 16, sorry, in his, uh, in his reign. Andrew, let's turn to the American colonies and the War of Independence in the 1770s. The Declaration of Independence, it's a revered and, frankly, an outstanding document, but you see a strong element of propaganda in it. Tell us more. Yes, that's right. That's right. Um, the first third of it is a sublime document, absolutely beautiful. It makes you proud to be uh, human reading some of those uh, those sentiments. But then the next two thirds, you have a series of 28 clauses accusing George III of things that he's essentially innocent of. Only two of the 28 is he guilty of. Um, but those two the 17th clause, which is about taxation, and the 22nd, which is about British veto rights over American legislation, they in and of themselves justify the American Revolution. But there's an awful lot of other stuff 
ex post facto rationalization and accusing him of things that all British monarchs had done since uh, Oliver Cromwell and before, you know, that simply don't stack up or for, for one reason or another are essentially sort of lawyers padding that Thomas Jefferson put into the declaration uh, in order to um, to essentially pad it out. It's, it's wartime propaganda as opposed to real jurisprudence. So is that why, I mean, you mentioned Thomas Jefferson there, but it's really the American founding fathers. Did they need to paint King George in the worst possible light to boost their case in domestic support? I mean, is that is that why George's place in history is tarnished? Precisely that. That and also the fact that the um, the Whig historians of um, of Britain for 200 years very much um, took the same stance and tried to make George III out to be a, a tyrant, which he most certainly was not. You know, he was a limited uh, government, limited um, constitutional king who um, revered the um, the glorious revolution and didn't for a moment believe in the divine right of kings or any of that sort of Stuart absolutist um, yeah. rubbish. So all in all, um, you know, the, the, the thing together, the, the American founding fathers and their need for a wartime propaganda, a totally understandable need, um, mind you, but, and also the British historians of the 19th century have together managed to blacken his name for 200 years. Yes, yes, and this is all part of the mythology of American nationhood, saying that the king was responsible for the for the defeat and the loss of the American colonies, but you make it clear that it's Parliament, right? They made the decisions and prosecuted the unsuccessful war, right? At Parliament, and yes, and the ministers, the government, Lord North's government, um, who was who was pretty much the least successful uh, prime minister we've ever had, um, a mm. very jolly and good natured person as a as a sort of domestic prime minister, he was fine. But the minute that uh, he had to fight a war, especially a long war uh, in America, a long way away, um, he made every mistake possible. And we also were pretty badly let down by the generals as well. They weren't an admirals. They weren't up to much. Um, and, uh, and of course, you have to remember, you're up against some of the most brilliant Americans of their uh, yes. of, of, of their entire history, you know. I mean, you've got you've got some truly extraordinarily impressive Americans who were who were against uh, the British at the time, and some British uh, distinguished American historians, Andrew, have argued that the King was guilty, or at least he played a role in the events that um, helped galvanise and spark the American uprising. I mean, they'd say the Stamp Act, the tax on tea, for example. How would you respond to them? Well, um, the Stamp Act actually was repealed because George III uh, made sure that his supporters in Parliament voted against it. So, um, the um, so I, I don't think that that that's fair with regard to the tax on tea, which is a really which is a really important thing because, of course, it leads to the Boston Tea Party, and uh, you, within six months you actually have shots being fired in uh, just outside Boston. Um, that is something that he was in favour of. And so uh, in my book, I do go through the various um, the various sort of declensions of that, of the outbreak of that war and uh, and work out the things he was he was um, right about and things he was wrong about. Essentially, he was more right than wrong, but he wasn't always right, <laughs> to sum it up. Then there's an almighty battle with the French, but by this time his illness takes over. What 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 condition was he in, and and how did he see out the the last part of his life? 
Well, he was fine for the first um, first what seventeen years of the French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars. So he was a mm. you know he was very much uh, around and compostmentis, and he was a he was a good wartime leader uh, until eighteen ten when he then slipped into his his final um, ten years of complete madness. And the poor man, he was blind and deaf and senile and mad by the end of his life. So he wasn't in any sense a ruler from 1810 onwards. And so he didn't know that we'd won the Battle of Waterloo, for example. But in earlier parts, the Battle of Trafalgar, for example, he did know about and uh, and he was able to ennoble um, Nelson and, and later Wellington. Is there a legacy that the modern royals might owe to King George III? Oh, yes, very much. Um, he was a, uh, I think uh, King Charles III has got uh, has got um, various things that he could learn from his great, 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 great grandfather. Um, the first <laughs> is that he is, I'm, I'm pretty sure there might be an extra great in there that I missed out, I'm afraid, but we'll, uh, fingers, <laughs> fingers crossed I got it right. Um, the, the first is um, George III was particularly uh, frugal in his eating and drinking. He was very financially prudent. Uh, He was somebody who uh, put duty and hard work at the very centre of his his reign. So I think that um, just like Elizabeth II did, I think that uh, Charles III could could learn a good deal from, uh, from George III. That was the distinguished historian Andrew Roberts. He's author of The Last King of America, George III, The Life and Reign of Britain's Most Misunderstood Monarch. I spoke to him in September of last year, not long after the death of Queen Elizabeth II. And that's it for Between the Lines this summer series. Hope you enjoyed some of the many highlights we've revisited over the last five weeks. In our next episode, I'll be back with fresh new ideas, debates and discussions. Till then, I'm Tom Switzer. Bye for now. been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.